Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. You know, I've had a wonderful time these past few months uh, just going through the book of Revelation verse by verse and uh, learning about this wonderful plan that God has for the final redemption of this earth. Uh, The Scriptures teach us that Christ can come at any time and that as Christians we need to be looking for the coming of Christ and, as Paul calls it, looking for that blessed hope. And I know that there are many who don't look forward to the coming of Christ. Uh, Some are very forlorn about Christ's second coming. They don't want to look at the things that we're talking about in the book of Revelation. Uh, Some of them simply don't believe it. Uh, There are some very terse warnings towards those who are unbelievers. And so some people don't believe it, and some people would rather just not be confronted with the things that we're talking about here. But I don't feel any of that kind of trepidation as I talk about these things that we've been studying. And the reason that I don't is because my hope is in Christ. And I don't believe that I'm going to go through any of the things that we've been talking about here, at least not the tribulation period. And should I die, I believe that uh, immediately I'll be in the presence of the Lord and I won't worry about it. And if I'm alive when Jesus comes back, I believe that trumpet's going to sound and then I'll be gloriously transformed and uh, just... uh, in the twinkling of an eye, translated into the kingdom of God. I don't fear any of these things because I know where I stand with God. But also I don't fear these things because of this wonderful doctrine that we're going to talk about tonight. Now, I love the study of the book of Revelation for many reasons, not the least of which is what we find here in Revelation 13, verse number 8. I mean, the Bible... Always, no matter where you go in the Scripture, somehow, somewhere, it's going to lead us to the absolute sovereignty of God and will reveal to us a God who is a God of plan and purpose and that He works all things after the counsel of His own will. Even when you go into the Old Testament and you read a book like Esther, a book where the name of God is never even mentioned. Jehovah God is not even mentioned in the entire book of Esther. And yet that book is about God's providential watch care over his people, his preserving of his own people. The Bible is nothing other than a book that reveals God. And if the Bible is going to reveal to us God, and this is what God has to say about himself, then certainly it would be something that would tell us how God uh, rules over the affairs of men, over angels, over all of his creatures. Not even the smallest detail of what happens in this world is outside of the purview of God. And so we come then to this eighth verse in Revelation chapter 13. And I thought that it would be good for us to uh, take this verse separately and to speak of the unmistakable doctrine that we find here. Now, I want to explain this doctrine tonight, and uh, we're going to look into the Word of God, and we'll just really, uh, there's a lot of Scripture tonight, but we're just looking at a few of the places where we can find this taught. Uh, It's a great doctrine that's found all throughout the entirety of God's Word. Well, what is that doctrine? We're going to talk about that tonight in just a few minutes. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're going to read this verse, and then we'll get into our our study of this. Revelation 13, verse number 8. The Scripture says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now that is talking, of course, about the Antichrist. The whole world will worship him, except those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, just as a parallel verse, if you'll just flip over a few pages to 17, chapter 17, verse number 8, Revelation 17, 8, again, speaking of the Antichrist, it says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are, were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. As we talk about this important doctrine tonight, I just pray, Lord, you give us wisdom and understanding. Uh, Help us to uh, get the full picture here of of what your word says about this doctrine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject tonight is an old name written down in glory. 
Now, many of you probably recognize that the title of the message comes from a hymn that was in our old hymnal called A New Name in Glory. And the theme of that song is about salvation. It's about a, a person, a sinner who comes and he kneels at the, at the cross of Christ and receives Christ for salvation. Now, that part of it is all well and good. But I want to read to you the last stanza of the song. And this is as it is in the old hymn book. I don't think we have it in the new one. But it says, in the book tis written, saved by grace, oh, the joy that came to my soul. Now I am forgiven, and I know, by the blood I am made whole. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh, yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story, a sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh, yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven. Nevermore to Rome. Now that song really sounds great, but it's not scriptural. And it's not scriptural according to what we just read in Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8 because the names of those who trust in Christ were not written down at the time that a person believes, but those names have been written down all the way from the foundation of the world. God knows what sinners will do before they ever hear the gospel of Christ. Before it's even preached, God knows exactly who will believe it, who won't believe it. And that's because he has written down the names of all those who will believe in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, salvation is by God's design from the start to the finish. There is no guesswork with God. There is no dependence uh, of God waiting upon to see what man will do, what his decision will be. He doesn't have to wonder what man will do because the decision of man, as far as receiving Christ as his Savior, has already been firmly established by a declaration, a sovereign declaration of God. Now, Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8 speak of names written down from the foundation of the world. So there are no new names that are written down. They're old names, and they've been there a long, long time because they were written down there before any of us were ever born. So what is the doctrine that we're speaking of? Well, it's not thinly disguised. It's not veiled in the Word of God. Uh, Both of the verses say that names are written down before the foundation of the world. And so that is nothing other than a declaration of this doctrine that we call the doctrine of election. And that is that God has chosen his people. And the time of their choosing, again, is not when they believe, but they were chosen to believe. And that choice was made not in time, it was made in eternity. And so God wrote down the names of all of those that he chose to salvation. Now, that's what I want to discuss with you tonight. So let's begin with this. I want to talk to you about the definition of election. And I want to make it very clear to you what the doctrine is about. Now, there are many theologians that I could go to to give you a a definition of the doctrine. If you go back and you look into Baptist history, you'll find there that uh, there aren't the common denials that you find of the doctrine today. I mean, it's so prevalent for Baptist people today to reject what I'm going to tell you tonight. But the greatest theologians of the past have declared this and they have believed it. And if you want to know what Baptists have believed all down through the history of the Baptist church, uh, you can go into history and you can find out that men that were very strong in the faith did not deny what the Scriptures so very clearly teach. Now, the definition that I want to give you is one that comes from Augustus Strong. Uh, He was a Baptist theologian that lived from 1836 to 1921. And he was a teacher of biblical theology. I believe he taught in a seminary in Rochester, New York. But in 1907, he uh, produced a systematic theology. And he's known and considered to be one of the foremost Baptist theologians of recent history. And here is the definition that he gives us of the doctrine of election. Election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men to be the recipients of the special grace of his Spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. 
Now, there is a lot that is packed into that statement, and there's so much here that I, uh, in one sermon, I can't possibly touch everything that's there. I just want to give you some of the, uh, some of the highlights of it. And I, can, I think that we can begin by saying that this doctrine of election is grounded in the attributes of God. Now, I hope you understand what we mean when we talk about attributes of God. Those are things that are essential characteristics of God. There are things about His character without which God cannot be God. And the doctrine of election is born out of certain of these uh, characteristics of God, these attributes, and if the doctrine of election is not true, and if what I'm about to tell you is not true, then we are denying, or if you say that it's not true, we're denying the essential components of God's person. Now, I'm only going to mention two of the attributes of God, and there are many, many more that we could go into, but I think these two for now will be sufficient to show us that the attributes of God support this particular doctrine. So we we begin with, then, the immutability of God, His immutability. Now, that simply means that God cannot change. God does not start out one way, and then He becomes something else. God does not morph. Whatever has been in God has always been in God, and a change in God could only mean that something was not right with him. It would mean that something wasn't perfect. And so God had to be something other than what he already was, and that God must then change into something that's better. Now, of course, that would be impossible, and we know that God's not going to change into something that's worse. Uh, God does not change. He is immutable. And so that means that whatever God uh, was, whatever was in the will of God, has always been in the will of God, and it will always be in the will of God. God does not change His will, and that's for the obvious reason that, that I've just stated. God cannot change. Now, that means that if it was ever in the will of God for anyone to be saved, that it's always been in the will of God for that person to be saved. And conversely, if it was not in the will of God for a certain person to be saved, then that's never been his will, and it never was his intention, and never will be his will to save that person. Now, God doesn't change. And so it's no wonder that God should have this book in which he wrote down the names of all of those that would believe because he's the one who has chosen them to salvation and it was his will for them to trust him. God cannot change his intent and there never develops a new purpose in God. Now I think sometimes that we're guilty of trying to make God like fallible man. Men change. There's all kinds of things that change about us. We have many different courses of action. And we think that because we change, then possibly God changes as well. And God is just as impetuous as man. But the difference is that God already knows everything that's going to take place. God already knows about all events. He already knows all the contingencies that are based upon any event. Now, that would lead me then into the second of God's attributes that prove this doctrine, and that is the omniscience of God. God knows every event that can possibly happen. Now, we might think when we look at this that, well, uh, yes, well, God does know things, but God lets things go. He knows what will happen, but God really doesn't control everything that happens. Now, nothing could be further than the, from the truth. Foreknowledge The foreknowledge of God, his knowledge of events and of people that are in the future, is not something that is mere prescience. And what I mean by that, it's not, uh, God is not like a fortune teller. He doesn't know the future, and yet he has no direct influence on the future. The foreknowledge of God is based in his eternal purpose. He knows what will happen because he's planned for that to happen. In other words, God's foreknowledge is based in his decree. Now, let me give you some scripture on this. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30 are about as clear on this as we can possibly get. But you're familiar with the scripture. It says, For him, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
Augustus Strong made the statement in his definition of election. Election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones. Now, one of the common arguments that's made about the eternal election of God is that God simply knows who will believe, and he chose believers on the basis that he saw that they would believe. Now, that's what's known as election that is based upon foreseen faith. In other words, God doesn't really determine anything. He just looked down through time, and he saw that here was a person who would hear the gospel, and that person believed the gospel, and based upon his belief, then he chose him uh, in the very beginning. Now, that's really the most popular view of this topic, and that is what we find expressed in the song, A New Name Written Down in Glory. But it's so wrong that it almost really doesn't deserve an answer. I mean, it sinks beneath its own weight. And more importantly, folks, it sinks beneath the weight of Scripture to believe in such a thing. Now, the problem with all of this lies in the definition of foreknowledge. What does Paul mean when he says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Well, God's foreknowledge by design must also include his purpose. And the immutability of God has already established that. Uh, God foreknew the individual, and he put that individual into his eternal purpose. Now, God's foreknowledge is eternal, and it must be because God is eternal. And so, therefore, the election that we read about in the Bible must also be eternal. It can't be dependent upon things that happen in time. Now, where do we find in Scripture, and this is very important for you to listen carefully and to understand this, where do we find in Scripture that God's foreknowledge equates to his eternal purpose? Well, let me read to you some Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, that's an important statement. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Now, we notice again, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, does that mean then that God's election is based simply upon the fact that God foreknows future events, or does it mean that he knows these things because they were already in his eternal purpose. Well, let me read to you another scripture that comes from the very same chapter. If you skip down and if you had your Bible open, you would see this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily, now speaking about Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The word foreordained is from the very same root word that we get foreknowledge in verse number 2. Now here, if you think about this, who is going to argue that God only knew that Christ would be crucified? That God didn't really plan it. He just knew that Christ would come into the world and he would be crucified. Well, that would make Christ's death nothing more than an accident. It would be just an accidental turn of events. Of course, God knew exactly what Christ would do because God planned and purposed this. He planned and purposed that Jesus would be the Redeemer who came into the world. And that information is very clearly taught to us in Acts chapter 2. There, Peter says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands and crucified, have crucified and slain. Now, it's no accident. Uh, Peter is perfectly consistent with himself. It's no accident that that he expounds part of the sermon that he preached on Pentecost as he brings up this subject in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
The foreknowledge that we found there in verse number 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, is the very same as the foreordination that's found in verse number 20. So what that means is that God purposed the election of his people exactly as he purposed the death of Christ for those people. And you notice when it says that he purposed this? Just like we find in the book of Revelation, it says it was before the foundation of the world. Now, there's another very interesting scripture that we find in Acts 13, verse 48. And there it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, now that's the preaching of Paul, when they heard the gospel of Christ, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those that were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, there are many Arminian Baptists that wish that that verse was turned around and that it said this, and as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. And that's what it would have to say if salvation was a matter of man's will and if it was a matter of man's choice. And if it's true, as that song says, that a man's or a person's name is written down at the moment that he believes, then that's exactly what this verse would have to say. And as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. But the verse doesn't say that. It says that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So that's the ordination of the event. That's the predestination of that event, and it occurred prior to the person's belief. Well, now we can go back to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8, and we see the intent of what Paul's really trying to get across to us. Again, he says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, what we have in those two verses is a start-to-finish picture of salvation. There we find salvation beginning with the election of God's people all the way to their glorification. And in between there, in all of this, we find the steps of salvation. For whom he did foreknow. Now that is the one and the same as election. And we notice there it's not what he foreknew. And there are many people who dispute this doctrine by saying, well, it's not Uh, It's what he foreknew. He just knew the event. That's what God knew. But that's not what the verse says. It says, for whom he did foreknow. That means that he knew the people. And these are one and the same with those names that are written down. So those that he foreknew, foreordained, elected, it's all the very same word, he predestined to be like Christ. And how did he do that? He did that by calling them effectually through the gospel of Christ, justifying justifying them through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and then finally glorifying them. And that means giving them a body just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we notice there that uh, when Paul speaks of this, he talks about it all as if it's in the past tense. It's sure and it's certain. Because it started out with this sure and certain election that occurred before the foundation of the world. So to deny God's election is to deny his attributes. Now, some time ago, I made the comment that those who do not believe in the sovereign purpose of God in election serve a lesser God. They serve a God who is not immutable. They serve a God who is not omniscient. And they serve a God who does not infallibly bring about the design and purpose of his plan. And what that does is to rob God of his character. It makes him like fallible man. Now, that hopes, or helps, I, I, I hope, to uh, help you to understand the definition of election. This is God choosing from eternity past those who would be the recipients of his marvelous grace. Now, let's go on, and we want to discuss the design of election. What was election designed to do? Why is election so necessary? And there are some who deny the doctrine of election on the basis that I mean, you hear this all the time, that if God elected people to salvation, it means that it keeps some people from going to heaven. If there is an election, then some are shut out of heaven. And then there are others who deny the doctrine based on fairness. And they say, well, everybody ought to have an opportunity to be saved. Everybody deserves a chance to be saved. Now, we're going to examine that a little bit. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But stated very simply... The design of election is to establish a people for the glory of God. Now, always keep that in mind. Whatever God does is for his own glory. 
Now, let's answer then the objections. First, we are chosen for God's pleasure. Now, let me read just several scriptures here that give us irrefutable evidence concerning God's pleasure in choosing people for himself. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Ephesians 1, 5, Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In Ephesians 1, verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Philippians 2, 13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God's choice is his pleasure. He chose us according to his good pleasure. And that means it's not for something in us. It's not because he saw that we would have faith. It was not based upon any good works that he saw that we would do. He chose us simply for one reason, because it was his pleasure to do so. That's what pleased him. Now, that reveals to us that salvation does not have its terminus in man. God is the one who is central and not man. So whatever God decides to do with his creature is first of all and foremost of all for his own glory. His primary purpose is what he chooses to do for himself. Now that shows the infinite measure of God's wisdom and his mercy and his grace because God chooses people in order to make a glorious display of himself. And if you, don't ever, if you don't get that plain fact from Scripture, you'll never understand why God chooses the way that he does. Now, people then will look at fairness, and they say, well, it isn't fair. It's not fair that God should choose some and not others. And my question would be, fair to whom? Fairness implies that God is somehow obligated to his creatures. It implies that somehow man has merited God's favor and that man deserves to be saved. And if that's true, then that is denial of God's grace. God is not obligated to do anything for anybody. Otherwise, what Paul says, grace is no more grace. When he becomes obligated to us because he has to be fair to somebody, what we call fairness, then we no longer have grace. Now, fairness implies that there's something in man that God is obliged to observe, and God must answer accordingly. But the Scriptures never tell us any such thing. It never talks uh, in such ways that it says that we deserve anything or that God has to be fair to us. Again, what we call fairness. God does whatever he does for his pleasure. And the Scripture says that he makes a vessel of honor or a vessel to dishonor as it pleases him. Now, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9 because this is very clearly stated there. Now, we're going to take a moment to read chapters not, chapter 9 in Romans, part of that, because this is really the death knell to an Arminian Baptist who insists upon fairness and insists that man should give, be given a chance to be saved. Now, I'm going to start reading in verse number 7 of Romans 9, but let me explain to you what's going on before we get to that. Paul is arguing for the very thing that I'm talking to you about tonight. He's arguing about God's sovereign right to choose. He's defending God's right to choose. And he demonstrates it in this scripture, first of all, by talking about God's choice of Isaac over Esau to be the heir to the promise of Abraham. He uses that as an example. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about Jacob and the, and the choice that God made of Jacob over Esau. And he minces no words when he demonstrates this, that God does not consider anything that's in a person That is the basis of his choice. The choice is founded in God and not in man. Now, we begin reading at verse number 7. We'll read down to verse number 21. Quite a long passage, but listen very carefully. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated." 
What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Now there's the grand objection. If it wasn't for the fact that God sovereignly chose, Paul never would have even asked this question. It wouldn't even be a a problem at all. So he says, Thou wilt say unto me then, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now we see there, God has designed this for his own purpose, designed election for his purpose. And the scripture very clearly tells us that God has the right to do as he chooses with any of us. And that's because he's the creator. And so we have to get it out of our heads that that man is the center of all this. God does nothing other than to leave man in the dust that he was created from. And the reason he does so, so he cannot leave any room anywhere for a person to boast about his salvation. So if you believe in Christ, it's because he chose you to believe in him. And if you have faith, it's because he gave you that faith. And he did it because that's what meets his design. It meets the grand object, which is his own pleasure. Now, we can forget about fairness because God owes us nothing. If you want God to be fair, then you'd better be prepared for the fires of hell because all that fairness will ever do for anybody is lead them away from the mercy and the grace of God. And it leads them into certain punishment for their sins. We do not deserve to be saved. We deserve to be punished. And that's because we're haters of God and criminals against his law. Don't ask God for fairness. Now, God's pleasure also fits God's other design, which is that we are chosen for God's purpose. Now, in Ephesians 1, verse 11, it says, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will." Now, that purpose we've pretty much stated already, which is to glorify God. We are trophies of God's grace, and so we only have one purpose in life, which is God's glory. Everything that he designed us to do ends in God's glory. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. Now, there we find God's purpose, that we would do works that glorify Him. Now, we don't have the time to go into describing all of those works and what they are, but let me simply say that everything that fits into God's commandments, everything that is obedience to God's commands, those are works that glorify God. Now, we've been discussing this somewhat in the area of worship on Sunday mornings, and we learn in the Sermon on the Mount that giving is our worship to God uh, in relation to man and Prayer is worshiping God in relation to deity. And fasting or works of devotion are uh, worshiping God in relation to ourselves. And so God has ordained that everything that man does in his worship, everything concerning this relationship between God and man, is that we are to walk in good works because that brings glory to God. That's the purpose of his grace. Now let me answer the objection then that more would be saved if God had not elected some. Would more be saved if God had not elected some? And my short answer to that is that none would be saved if God had not elected some. Uh, There are more saved with an election than there is without it because election is always positive. No one would ever be saved. Not one single person in all the world would be saved if there hadn't been an election. And so an election has nothing to do with the non-elect, because what that does, it just leaves man where he otherwise was. It leaves him in the state he's already in. The election of God has no effect on people who don't believe. 
Now, if you're going to argue that election cannot be right, it simply cannot be right because it condemns some people to hell, then you'd better be ready to argue that God must save all people or else God is not fair or, or, or uh, everyone ought to have that chance. Now, we back up to, for just a moment to point number one and we talk about God's omniscience. God's foreknowledge is as much an infallible guarantee that some are going to hell as it is an infallible guarantee that there are some are going to heaven. If all that foreknowledge amounts to is that God simply knows something beforehand, and that's all there is to it, well, doesn't that automatically confirm that some will be in hell and some will go to heaven? I mean, the certainty of the act is there if God already knows it. I mean, you can't change something that God knows is going to happen. And so if God foresees that you won't believe, could you ever believe? And if God foresees that you will believe, could it happen that you wouldn't believe? You see, that's totally absurd. Foreknowledge without design guarantees that some won't be saved. Now, be ready to argue that God is unjust if he doesn't save all, if you want to argue that he's unjust because he only saves some. Now, why then is this so necessary? Why is it necessary that God elect us before we can be saved? Well, the answer to that question is that God must move first. And this is what we learn in Ephesians 2, verse 1. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, here is the problem for every person in the world. A chance to be saved does not do anyone any good. And that's because we're all dead in trespasses and sin. We have no spiritual life. And so that means that we cannot perform any kind of a spiritually alive action. And a spiritually dead man could no more believe than a person who has been dead in the cemetery for a hundred years could ever get up and walk out of that cemetery. Dead means dead. It doesn't mean wounded, and it doesn't mean shallow breathing. It means dead. Now, if you want to make a comparison here, uh, should we do this? Should we, should we go to the cemetery and for every body that we bury there, uh, that in the casket we put a shovel? We leave a shovel in the casket with that person and we walk away. Well, what have we done if we do that? Well, we've given everybody in the cemetery a chance to dig themselves out. But how many of you think that if you went back to the cemetery the next day, that that shovel wouldn't be in exactly the same place where it was put? You see, it's the very same thing with the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is just like, uh, without the Holy Spirit, I should say, it's just like a spade in the cemetery for dead people. If a man is spiritually dead, as Paul proclaims, then God has to make him alive before he can believe. You can't believe with being dead. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God's action must come first. The Holy Spirit has to come first. So God moves first, which is always prior to the belief. Now, if it's right for God to call a person to repentance and faith, and would anyone disagree with me that it's right for God to do that if he wants? If it's right for God to draw someone, for God to bring someone to repentance and faith, is it right for God to intend to do it? Is it right for him to intend to do it? Now, why would God do it if he didn't have the intention that that's what he wanted to do? And folks, thus you have the doctrine of election. Election is God's determination to move on man. And since God is the eternal God and the will of purpose in God never changes, then his determination to move upon man has always been his determination. And Revelation 13.8 states that that is from the foundation of the world. So election is nothing more and nothing less than God's eternal will of purpose to save any individual. Now, it's ever been the same. It's never going, to change, never going to change. And that's why Revelation 17, 8 tells us there that those people will not worship the Antichrist. They can't worship him. They never will. Because their names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. It would be impossible for them to turn and worship the Antichrist. And that's because it's all according to God's good pleasure and his divine purpose. Now, I need to take a little bit longer with this to try to wrap things up. So stay with me a little bit longer, and we're going to discuss the third point tonight. And that is the defense of election. Election is a scriptural doctrine. And I think, you know, you, you ought to be able to see that already from what I've said and the scriptures that we've given. But although I've already given you so much scripture, there are some who say, well, what you have done tonight so far is you've just presented an intellectual argument. 
not really a scriptural argument. It's just an intellectual one. Some years ago, I wrote an article, and we put this on the website in defense of our belief. And the person that I was arguing about said, well, those who believe like that, they are obnoxious nuisances, and they are pseudo-intellectuals. And I thought that that was just a brilliant display of character, and even a more brilliant display of how God saves people despite their character. But in our doctrine, uh, if this is nothing more than intellectual argument, or, or is it nothing more than that, and are there some very, very humble people who are not obnoxious nuisances that actually do believe this? Well, let me answer the question first by giving you the apostles' perspective. Now, what I want to do here is really nothing more than just to read some more Scripture, and all of these are noted on your listening sheet, so you can read these later. Now, I've already read Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 29 through 30, Romans 7, uh, 9, 7 through 21, Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 11, 1 Peter 1, 2, Revelation 13, 8, and Revelation 17, 8. And I think that's a pretty good start on showing us that the apostles taught the doctrine of election. But I want to consider these other verses also because I've not even given you the one that's the most famous verse in all of the Bible when we talk, talk about the subject. We haven't even gotten to that, and that is in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. And there Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Paul also wrote Second Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. He wrote 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He also wrote 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. He wrote 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now that's a very important verse, because you see there that Paul says, I endure this for the elect's sake that they may obtain. And so what he must be talking about here is some who are the elect who have not yet attained it. And so he goes through all the things that he goes through, all the hardships of his life and of the preaching of the gospel, because the elect need to hear that in order to believe to be saved. So he endures this for the elect to obtain. So that proves to us they're not elected when they're saved. 1 John 4.10 John says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So there was never anything in us that God would see in us to to call us to salvation. It's not our foreseen faith because it says we did not love God and God called us. And then in Revelation 21, verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There John is speaking of the new Jerusalem. Nobody gets in there, nobody gets into heaven whose name is not written in the book. And of course, the other verses that we read in Revelation told us when those names were written down. Now, those are just a few of the places. We can find many more where the doctrine is either plainly stated or is inferred by the apostles' teaching. Now, we go on. We have another perspective, and that is Jesus' perspective. Now, I don't know. Maybe you call Jesus an obnoxious nuisance and call him a pseudo-intellectual, and uh, maybe you don't trust the apostles on this, and apparently many people don't trust them. So what did Jesus say about it? Well, you know, there's much recorded in the Gospels what Jesus has to say on the doctrine, but I'm just going to confine this to one Gospel. That's the Gospel of John. It's a wonderful book to read if you're looking for the doctrine of election. But John begins... In John 1, 11 and 13, and this course sets the precedent for everything that comes afterwards, he says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not 
of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now there we have, like I said, this is the precedent for what comes afterwards. We're not born because of decisions that we make. It's not the will of our flesh. It's not the will of man. Man is saved because of the will of God. Now, Jesus then is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he says something very, very interesting here. He says in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And what he's saying there is the Holy Spirit comes upon a person just like the wind comes. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. You can't see it. You can't touch it or anything like that, but you, can, you know that it's been there. And so what he's talking about here, what Jesus is saying, is that the Holy Spirit of God works above our comprehension, or if you want to put it this way, he works below our consciousness when he brings a person to life in order that he might believe. And that shows us that God is working first. It's not something that we have done. John 5, 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. And that verse tells us that Jesus is selective. He quickens whom he will. John six twenty nine. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So belief doesn't, is not conjured up within man, within man. It is the work of God. That's God's work that's done that you might believe. In John six thirty six and 37, But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me, shall come to me. Now, there we have a selection. Some have been given to Jesus by the Father. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty nine. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Very clearly, not all have been given to Jesus. John six forty four. No man can come to me, except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And there we have established again, Jesus or God must work first on a person. We don't come unless we're drawn. Uh, John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. A very clear distinction here. He gives his life for the sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, John ten fifteen, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There you see it again. Now, verse, uh, John 10, verse 26, and this is an important verse, and putting all that together, it comes at the end of these sayings, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I told you. Here's the very reason that they didn't believe in Jesus Christ, because they had not been chosen to believe in him. They were not his sheep, and so they could not, they would not believe. Now, we notice there, as it is throughout the Scripture, the sheep are synonymous with the elect of God. We talk about goats, we talk about sheep. The sheep are the people of God. And he says, you did not believe because you are not of my sheep. In John 13, 18, Jesus said, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. John fifteen sixteen. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. And then we go to perhaps the most outstanding scripture on this, perhaps even in the whole Bible, that comes from Jesus. And that's in John chapter 17, where we have that great high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus. Now, we preached on that some quite a while ago in the, in the Gospel of John, and we call that the real Lord's Prayer, because this is the prayer that Jesus prays himself to his Father. And he says in verse 2, As thou, speaking to the Father, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to whom? To as many as thou hast given him. John seventeen nine. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them that thou hast given me, for they are thine. John seventeen eleven. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Now, this is what we call the covenant that's made between God the Father and God the Son. And this is a covenant that was made all the way back at the very beginning, that Christ would come into the world to give his life for somebody, would give his life for somebody to be saved. And who are they? 
the ones that had been given to Christ from the Father. And those are the very same ones who have their names written down. Now, you're getting the picture here that the Bible puts up a very good defense about the doctrine of election. I don't have to defend it. The, the apostles do it. Jesus does it. I mean, it, it's very clear in Scripture. But there's another, a couple of other perspectives I want to give you very quickly. Uh, lest you think that uh, we're out on a limb here somewhere and there are nobody who believes such things as this, let's look thirdly at the historical perspective. Let me give you just a list of a few names. Uh, Some of the greatest theologians of all time who taught and believed the doctrine of election, just as I've described it to you tonight. Now, the first sampling that I want to give you is just, uh, is some from off the Baptist list of people, theologians and great people down through history who have believed this. And I might add that if you get back beyond uh, the first part of the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, uh, you'll find that Baptist people, almost without exception, believe the very same thing that I'm talking to you about tonight. But let me, let me just give you a list of some of them. Roger Williams, he was the one who founded the first Baptist church in America. Benjamin Keach, Isaac Backus, John Gill, that great commentator, Andrew Fuller, uh, William Carey. And William Carey, you recognize his name. He's the father of modern missions is what he's been called. He believed and taught this doctrine. Adoniram Judson was the same. Uh, Luther Rice, the, those were both them. Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice were both great missionaries. Uh, James P. Boyce, John Broadus, J.R. Graves, J.M. Pendleton, Augustus Strong, Charles Spurgeon, uh, John Dagg, B.H. Carroll, J.M. Carroll. J.M. Carroll is the one who wrote that little book we have outside on the trail of blood. Uh, those are just a few of the Baptists. Arthur Pink, another great one who believed this doctrine. And so you find it all throughout Baptist history. As I said, just go back a, a few years, a hundred or more, and you won't find hardly anyone among Baptists who don't agree with what I've just said. And if you haven't heard of some of these people, I encourage you, just go get, a dick, go get an encyclopedia, whatever. Look up their names. See who they are. So nearly every Baptist before the modernist movement believed in the unconditional election of God's people before the foundation of the world. Now, what's happened to us is that fundamentalism came along, and there's nothing wrong with that because fundamentalism started out as an as a, uh, argument against the modernist movement that began by uh, denying the, the, not only the doctrines of God's Word, but the inerrancy of Scripture. And that's where fundamentalism really got its start. But in the process of time, what fundamentalism did, it began to go away from these very doctrines that I'm talking to you about tonight. And so they abandoned the Scriptures on this. And I think that all of you can attest to this who have come out of this, that what they did was they made uh, a system of salvation that is dependent upon man's decision and not upon God's eternal purpose in grace. And that's why you find so many of these people pressing for decisions, 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 because they believe that man's decision is what makes the difference rather than God's eternal purpose in grace. Then I could go on and I could talk to you about the list of non-Baptists. And these were all believers, uh, believed in salvation by grace through faith alone. And that list would include Martin Luther and John Calvin, John Owen. I don't know if you know the name John Owen, but he was a Puritan. He was considered, still is considered by many, to be the greatest theologian who ever lived outside of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, I could mention uh, also Jonathan Edwards, of course, Thomas Watson, William Ames, uh, Stephen Charnock. Uh, Charnock wrote a definitive book on the existence and the attributes of God that uh, most preachers that know anything have that copy in their library. Matthew Henry, uh, the greatest, considered by some to be the greatest commentator of all time, certainly the greatest devotional commentator, and just about every preacher has, a, even ones who don't even believe it, have uh, these doctrines, have Matthew Henry in their libraries. Uh, Charles Hodge, Alexander Hodge, B.B. Warfield, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and... The list goes on and on and on and on of great theologians who believe the doctrine. And then I might add this, that names from both of those lists, uh, Baptists and otherwise, came to their conclusions, many of them, because they were refuting Roman Catholic heresy. Because the Roman Catholics championed the Arminian view of salvation, and they took it all the way out to its obvious conclusions. Conditional election, rather than unconditional elections, will bring you logically to a doctrine of salvation based upon works. Well, that's all good information, of course, but 
the most important of it all is not what men have said. The most important thing is what God says, what Scripture says. And I think that I've given you, I don't know how many Scriptures, I didn't count up how many there are here, but we see Scriptural proof that God's Word declares this doctrine. We don't need to vindicate God over His doctrine. But I want to finish now with just one more perspective, and this is a believer's perspective. There was a fine Baptist preacher about 50 or 60 years ago by the name of Dr. C.D. Cole. And he strongly preached the doctrines of grace. He wrote uh, several books, smaller books and pamphlets on the subject. And one of those pamphlets fell into the hands of a woman who was in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And she read Dr. Cole's treatment of the subject, and she was reading things that she had never read before. I mean, she'd never heard of these doctrines. Her, her church didn't teach them. There was no preaching about it. And so she became very interested in this doctrine, and she wrote to Dr. Cole with a whole list of questions. And they had several exchanges that went back and forth. And finally, through the exchange of letters and things that she read, this particular woman came to the understanding of the doctrines of grace, and uh, she began to teach those to her ladies' group in her church. Now, I want to close tonight with some comments that came from her letter that she wrote to Dr. C.D. Cole. And I want you to listen to this because you might find yourself described here. And... Seven years or so ago, when I became pastor of the church, I, I started to teach these doctrines. And, of course, I've grown up with them all my life. Uh, we, where our church was from, and we were very, um, very concerned about Baptist history, biblical doctrines, and all of that. So we'd, we'd learned these doctrines and been taught them and had been teaching them for years. But when I came here, most of you began to hear me preach, and there were things, well, that... That doesn't sound like what we've heard before. That sounds much different than what we've heard before. Well, this lady was in the same condition. Her church did not teach these doctrines. But let me read to you part of her letter. She says, When I first read your pamphlet, in addition to all my other objections to election, I didn't like the idea that, in a sense, I had nothing to do with becoming a Christian. I'd always supposed that, with the Spirit's help, I had sense enough and intelligence enough to recognize something worthwhile and take it. It didn't appeal to me at all to think that if I had been elected, I really had nothing to do with my salvation at all, even the accepting of it. But now that is the best part of it. It's humbling and breathtaking and frightening and thrilling all at once. I just can't get over it, Dr. Cole, to think that all these years, I'm 41, I have missed this tremendous teaching and the thrill and joy of it. It has made my salvation and conversion much more real and personal. I've always envied people who spoke with such joy of their conversion and felt that something had happened, and I couldn't even remember a time when I didn't believe, if you know what I mean. It has worried me. I've had a sneaking fear that maybe all that I had was a, had was a head or creedal belief because I brought, was brought up in a Christian home and accepted that as I did other uh, patterns of behavior and thought. I have prayed off and on for months that, I would, that if I were saved, the Lord would make me realize it beyond all shadow of doubt and give me the joy of his salvation, not just a barren orthodoxy. Never did I dream of getting the witness of the Spirit through the doctrine of election. I wouldn't want the Lord to think that I'm not grateful for my salvation. I am. But right now, I feel as if I'm more grateful for election. Is that wrong? Over and over, I keep saying to myself, like someone rescued from a sinking vessel when others are lost, why me? Why me? When I wake up in the morning, I used to feel tired and exhausted and wish I didn't have to go to work. I'm a war widow. Now, almost as soon as I'm conscious, I have the feeling that something new and exciting has happened. And then it flashes across my mind in a wave of remembrance, you are elected. And I get so excited, I'm wide awake instantly and ready to be up and doing. I cannot explain it. But somehow, as long as you feel that you have the least little bit to do with your own conversion, it takes away some of the thrill and the bloom of it. But when the full impact of the thought and realization hits you that not only the provision of salvation is due to God's grace, but also His choice of you as recipient, One can only stand back and marvel, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Then she finished with this comment. It would be so wonderful to sit under that kind of preaching today. Why don't ministers preach doctrinal sermons anymore instead of this milky, predigested, topical preaching that so many give? 
No wonder Christians today aren't strong and virile and know what they stand for. They never got off the milk of the word onto the strong meat. I heard one Baptist minister say that we are snack bar Christians today when we should be dining room Christians. And I think he had something. Now, friends, there are no new names written down in glory. All the names that are there were written down before the foundation of the world. There is no guesswork with God. He is the sovereign God of plan and purpose. And if this is what you desire, if you desire milky, predigested, topical preaching, and you like to hear stories about this and that with a few scriptures that are tacked in between, I'm sorry, but Brian Baptist Church is not the place for you. The only snack bar that we have is on the other side of the curtain. So you're not going to get snacks from the pulpit, hopefully. We're going to preach the Word of God and preach in its truth and take the doctrines as they come and stand on them unequivocally. Praise God for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to present your Word tonight. Maybe some of the things that I've said have not been fully grasped and uh, maybe I didn't get the full intent of what I wanted to say across so that people understand very clearly. But by reading Scripture and just going through the Bible in verse after verse after verse, there is no way that we can deny what is so plainly taught in your Word. To do so is to deny the great God that you are, to deny your plan and purpose. It's to put our own purposes ahead of yours, and we never want to be guilty of that. We thank you, Lord, that in your mercy, love, and your grace that you did decide to choose us, not for anything that we have done, no boasting that we can do, no goodness on our part, no faith on our part, or anything that was in us was, had anything to do with your decisions. It was for your good pleasure and that alone. And we just thank you, Lord, that you have intended to put us within the will of your good pleasure. Bless your people tonight, Lord, and may we rejoice in the salvation that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.